I'm Dr. Brent Schillinger, along with my colleague, Dr. Abby Strauss. The opioid-related topic today is recidivism and mortality after in-jail buprenorphine. And this comes from a paper recently published in the journal Drug and Alcohol Dependence. Joining us to fill in the details is the lead author, Elizabeth Evans. Liz is Associate Professor of Community Health Education at the Department of Health Promotion and Policy at the School of Public Health and Health Sciences at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. Liz, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Clearly, the take-home message, your conclusion here is, yeah, this is a good thing. The folks who you followed through are less likely to get arrested and arraigned. They're less likely to go back to jail. I want to jump right in at the raw data. In the paper, you state that 48% of the experimental group versus 62% in basically the control group showed the fact that they did not end up back in the recidivism category. In the conclusion, you say there was a 29% reduction in recidivism. So, you know, when I do the math, I see like 14% less, or as if you take it a percentage of the 63%, it shows that the experimental group did 20% better. Where does the 29% come from? How significant is this from a practical point of view? The 29% reduction is from the regression modeling that we did. So we did survival analysis. So that's when we account for other factors that differentiated the populations in the group that had access to buprenorphine and the group that didn't. And once we account for other differences between them, then we come up with this 29% uh, lowered risk of recidivism if they had access to buprenorphine compared to if they did not while they were incarcerated. You could also look at those raw percentages, but but the 29% accounts for other things that might explain these outcomes that we've seen. And holding those you know, into account, we then attribute the jail itself, the access to buprenorphine, as explaining this reduction. So it's basically a complex statistical formula. Yes. So yes. How impressive is this from a practical point of view? You're still looking at 48, almost 50% of the people in the experimental group still experience recidivism mm-hmm. versus 66 62% in the group that did not receive the medication. When we first saw these results and working with our analysts and with the co-investigators, we kind of did a high five with each other. It was a confirmation of our hypothesis. And this is a pretty significant one to see such a reduction in the recidivism in the context of receiving the medication versus not. What has been the response in saying you're giving this population narcotics? You're supposed to fix them. This is Mm. the Department of Corrections. Correct the drug abuse problem. I come from a public health scientist that studied addiction for more than 20 years. Most of my work is looking at people over their life course and what explains the causes and consequences of addiction, but really focused on how do people achieve recovery. Much of my time has been focused on people with opioid use disorders, and we see that people can achieve recovery, and it's often attributable to them receiving those FDA-approved medications for treating opioid use disorders, buprenorphine and methadone, but that very few people ever do receive those medications. And instead, over their life, they spend much more of their life course incarcerated, where they don't have access to those medications historically. But there's a big shift underway now, where here in Massachusetts, there is a shift to the jails, actually. What we're doing and have done is not helping us to avoid preventable deaths or maybe contributing to it instead. So we should look at the evidence on what works for helping people avoid death among people who have opioid use disorder. And maybe we should think about providing these medications inside the jail. That's 
really where this study originated. When I arrived in Massachusetts a few years ago, I was pleasantly surprised to learn that a local jail here was one of the first in the country providing buprenorphine to people who had opioid use disorder while they were incarcerated. And they were one of the few, I think less than 5% of jails offer that. It's significant and it's like a shift towards a public health approach to addressing the opioid epidemic inside the criminal justice system. Is this group also required to be what are variously called drug cells, drug groups, NAAA meetings and the like, the non-pharmaceutical approach to treatment? Are they required to be engaged in that concurrently? This jail that we studied has those forms of services available. People are able to take advantage of that. Every person has the choice to decide their treatment inside the jail. They're not mandated to either take the medication or to take part, let's say, in the self-help group. And I think it's strongly encouraged, but ultimately it's up to the individuals to decide, along with in consultation with the physician who's treating them, what care is best for them. So because of your timing, you were actually able to conduct what you might call a natural experiment? One of the jails that we worked with was providing the medication. And in the same time period, a neighboring jail was not providing the medication. So it's this idea of just a natural experiment, meaning we did not have to randomize people to a condition of receiving the medication or not, or to one jail or the other, which is ethically not possible. Instead, just by the natural way of things happening, one jail was offering buprenorphine and the other wasn't. So it was a chance to see whether the outcomes would be different among those who exited one jail versus the other. For both jails, we studied everyone who left either of the jails between, I think it's 2015 to 2019. So there's a four-year period where everyone exiting the jail who had an opioid use disorder, we studied all of them. In that four-year period, one jail was providing buprenorphine, but the other wasn't. And then after exit from jail, we followed people for at least a year, whether, let's say, the recidivism rate or the mortality rate was different, depending on whether they received buprenorphine while incarcerated. Most of the research that has been done up to now is looking at uh, physical health risk, looking mm -hmm. at the continued drug use after release, overdose deaths infectious diseases, that type of thing. Your research took a different focus. That's a great question, and thanks for noticing that. We focus on recidivism, this return after having been incarcerated, a return to a reincarcerated setting, like having been returned to jail or prison, or being rearrested, or a probation or parole violation. So any of those events counts as a recidivism event. And we focused on that because that's an outcome that's of real interest to the criminal justice system. One of their main goals is public safety and protecting the community from harm, from crime. Our paper wanted to shine a light on whether receipt of this medication had an impact on the risk of recidivism because it would have implications for criminal justice systems elsewhere considering whether or not to provide this type of medication. You can imagine sheriffs and others who are responsible for this institution. One of their main priorities is to understand how whatever it is that they do with individuals who are incarcerated, how does that relate to the public safety or threat that that person might pose once they are released from those settings. Our study was unique in that it focused on recidivism and showed that in the context of having received buprenorphine, people were less likely to be rearrested or to have a probation or parole violation. 
This is very interesting. When someone comes in, is there a concurrent psychiatric evaluation and are there criteria that would prevent someone from going into the MOUD programs? Yeah, it's a great question. That's one of the first things we asked when we got to know a little bit more about the operation of the program inside the jail was, well, how do you assess for opioid use disorder? Is this a universal assessment, which is what we would prefer, like everyone be assessed for OUD upon entry into the jail? It turns out this jail does do that, but they also use other things besides self-report of like symptoms. And they use the DSM criteria for determining diagnosis of an opioid use disorder, but they also check the prescription drug monitoring program data to know if the person has been prescribed MOUD prior to their incarceration. And so that's an indication that they are being treated in the community for OUD, opioid use disorder, before becoming incarcerated. They're also able to test urine to see whether it tests positive for those medications. This jail happens to do assessments through self-report, but also through administrative data and biological tests. What about if somebody had legitimately been prescribed various opioids for pain. Uh, do, do they get into your program? Is that considered an MOUD issue? I'm interested in where you draw the line. They apply the DSM criteria for determining an opioid use disorder. I guess if the opioids are being used appropriately and it's not yet on the threshold of meeting the criteria for an addiction, they would not necessarily be eligible to be in the treatment program for addiction. There is a physician on site at the jail who is a specialist in addiction medicine. I hear what they say that they do, and this is what they explain to me. Going back to Abby's question, is there an assessment for psychiatric comorbidity? Oh, yes, yes. They do a diagnostic assessment and also self-reported symptoms and also checking for receipt of psychiatric medications just prior to incarceration. So they have several different ways that they do assess for that. 80% or more of those who are incarcerated in these jails in our study have depression or anxiety, and about a little over 35% are receiving psychiatric medications when they're admitted. A large proportion of them do have a co-occurring condition in addition to their opioid use disorder. So if they're in your program and they do well, and I was watching and reading some of the media pieces that you discussed, trying to essentially get case managers to set them up with post-incarceration treatment can be quite the challenge. Mm. Is there a more common than not reason for recidivism? Is it because the your medications are okay, but they slip back into criminal activity? What brings them back? Others have indicated that when people are taking the medication as prescribed and their addiction is being managed appropriately so that they're not experiencing withdrawal or cravings and can feel normal in their life while they're taking those medications, then they don't have a need to try to, let's say, steal property to sell it in order to buy drugs on the street. This idea that as long as their addiction is being managed, they don't have a reason to seek opioids, which then causes them maybe to engage in crime in order to support their ability to buy opioids. So as far as what causes them recidivate is this idea, well, those medications are effective only for so long as people continue to take them. They're not a cure. So we see when people discontinue their medication or their doses changes such that it isn't as effective as it once was, then they're maybe more likely to go seek opioids on the street and return to the crimes. As I hear this, and I applaud you, I think it's just good. It then becomes an obligation on the part of society 
to help these people get into situations so they can continue to get the treatment. These medications are not inexpensive. The lesson that you clearly show is that if we can do this, we can reduce the burden. How do you do that? I remember once being part of a group teaching medical students to work in a clinic, and everyone was writing a prescription for this and for that. And at the end of the day, somebody went behind a cafeteria and found so many of these prescriptions on the floor because these people had no access. They had no money to buy these prescriptions. Are you successful in preventing the relapses, keeping them in programs? That's my curiosity. I agree with you. We need to provide greater access to these medications. And so the criminal justice system is one place to do that. Fewer than 5% of jails or prisons in the United States provide these medications now. We know people with opioid use disorder are likely to be in those systems. So here's an opportunity to um, have them access these medications, but it's important that they be made available there. That's part of the work that's happening now in the United States that we're studying. What does it take to implement these medications inside jails and prisons? And then what outcomes does it have down the road? So imagine how prior to changes like this, someone could be on the medication when they become incarcerated and then taken off of it because the jail doesn't offer them. That's a situation where they're undermining someone's ability to achieve recovery. It supports this idea we need these medications available, especially for people involved in the justice system. So there's still this challenge, though, I agree, of those who do receive medications in jail, they are more likely to continue it in the community than if they did not receive those medications while in jail. But that re-entry is tough transition. Jails are doing things like creating re-entry programming to do like a warm handoff from the jail to the community treatment program so that within a 24-hour period of leaving jail, they do go enter a community opioid treatment program to continue their treatment. That's very good. One of the things that your data very beautifully identify is the reduction of overdose death when people are discharged into a program. And one of the things that is not unknown to people in addiction treatment is that people get off the medicine, they go home, and they say, oh, I was taking this much and that much, but oh, maybe I need more. Anyway, they went back to prior doses. And this mm-hmm. time, it's enough to give them respiratory depression and death. So you prevent a lot of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. That's, I think, that's, that's really good. And I think that data, you know, Massachusetts produced a study a few years ago that showed like the risk of death after among people of OUD and after they leave jail or prison, that two week period after exiting an incarcerated setting, they were 120 times more likely to experience an overdose, a fatal overdose event. And so that really shown a lighter pointed policymakers in Massachusetts to the criminal justice system as a place that is an opportunity to do much better. And it speaks to what you were just saying. If people aren't incarcerated and not receiving the medication, then they leave those places and are more likely to continue to use opioids at a level they were using when they entered, which is now a lethal dose for them or a dose that poses overdose risk. Is your data coming to, shall we say, persuade insurance companies to pay for this? Or is there a public health program in Massachusetts for those who have no insurance? You're doing good work to graduate them from your program, but there's no place for them to continue with that. That's that's my worry. Certainly yeah. the case in Florida. In Massachusetts, the state's form of Medicaid does cover these medications. One challenge, though, is that when they become incarcerated, their Medicaid is like put on pause. 
they're not disenrolled, but it's sort of like put on hold while they're incarcerated, such that when they exit, they have to reactivate it, reactivate their health insurance through the Medicaid program in order to access it when they go get care. So something that jails are doing now actually is recognizing this is a problem. They need a form of ID. They need this health insurance activated. So we, as individuals who help with re-entry, can make this a part of our job. We're going to help folks who are leaving jails navigate this by a working with them to reactivate their access to Medicaid as they leave jail, and then ensure they have all that paperwork in hand to be able to go enter care in a seamless way. That's the goal. So back to the specifics of your study. There were less than 500 inmates. It was two rural county jails, mostly white men in their mid-30s, and they returned to small rural communities. Can we extrapolate this data to other settings, to urban prisons, to minority populations? It's a great question and one that's hard to speak to. We recognize that as a limitation of our study. So right now we're engaged in a larger study where we will be able to replicate this with but with a greater diversity of jails and populations. We're working with nine jails now in Massachusetts who are delivering similar programming to see how outcomes look different for different types of populations. We know that recidivism are costly, but so is implementation of MOUD. How do we strike a balance or how do we convince policymakers that this is the right thing to do? I can refer to one of the landmark studies I helped to direct a few years ago in California, where we looked at a new proposition called Proposition 36 that provided nonviolent drug offenders the opportunity to receive treatment instead of incarceration. And there was a cost-benefit analysis. We found that those who received treatment instead of usual criminal justice processing had better outcomes. So they were less likely to recidivate, more likely to be employed and to have other positive outcomes. And when we put a dollar figure on those things, it turned out that $1 invested in treating them saved $7 in the long run in avoided criminal justice costs, mostly. Reincarceration and those recidivism events that I talked about are also very costly and maybe more so than treatment itself. You also did some work, what I found interesting differences between men and women in mental health issues and opiate issues. Are you measuring other demographic variables in your study? So in future work, we will look at differences by gender, race and ethnicity, age, the comorbidity, co-occurring mental health conditions, and probably also polysubstance use will be important. But we do expect to see differences in outcomes according to those factors. I study the health of women with addiction, and there are some factors unique to them that heighten their risk for addiction or make them less likely to engage in care. One of them, for example, is fear about what might happen to children who they are caring for. So this idea that by asking for help, they're worried that it might jeopardize their parental rights. And so this could become a reason why they don't seek care when they most need it. There are other factors, but that one particularly interests me. I think it would be fascinating if I could offer questions in your studies. Yeah. To, why not? I'll, I'll throw it out. To use as a parameter those who have some sort of very significant traumatic background. Mm, yeah. Because, and these people tend to be very slippery. It's a horrible, I, I wish it wasn't. They tend to be slippery. But if you could see that the ones who were recidivistic had more of a traumatic background, not necessarily a depression per se or for anxiety, because those are manifestations, but look a little bit more into their background, that mm -hmm. might give you the sense to predict more about who was going to come back and who was not. I think it would be a fascinating question. I think you might've read my dissertation. 
I focus on adverse childhood experiences and how that relates to people's risk for addiction as they age. So this idea of experiences before the age of 18 of sexual or physical abuse or neglect or household dysfunction, and that those are sort of like persistent underlying risk factors for addiction that can last someone's lifetime. It's true, though, that people can cope with those events, and there are other ways to ameliorate those effects, but not everyone has access to those resources. So I think you're right on that accounting for early life events and how those can play out in the health in our later life are very much something important. And to dovetail, if someone gets out of jail and they don't have to go look for their drugs. They can mm-hmm. then spend the time, energy, and their own resources, pray tell, putting their life together in a better, easier way. They're not as um, handicapped. Some of the stress and coping research shows that or indicates that with those experiences of childhood adversity, people are more reactive to later stressors in their life. I could have an experience of childhood adversity, but you don't. And then let's say we're both in our 40s and we have a very stressful life event. I'm more susceptible to react poorly to that life event because of my history of childhood adversity than you. So this idea that childhood adversity can kind of prime people for the proliferation of the poor impacts of stressful events later in life. Really interesting. We've had a number of discussions about the whole ACEs situation. Uh Interesting in terms of intervention, just being able to talk about it seems to make a huge difference. Yeah. Among this population that we studied who was incarcerated in these jails, I think it's something like 85% have, I think it's something like five or more ACEs. They have very high ACE scores in general. It's a normative reality in this population in particular, very high rates of exposure to childhood adversity. So summing things up, you have some very impressive data, but you're also in a very progressive state, Massachusetts. Has this data been appreciated by any other states? Have there been any bites yet? What do you, what do you know about our state of Florida? What do you hear? We have done some national presentations and involving our criminal justice partners who have like photographs of what the jail and the treatment setting looks like inside the jail. So I think it's this idea of exposing people to a model of excellence and then connecting them to resources, peers who also operate jails, who can help them think of implementing something similar in their jail, in their state. It's true. Massachusetts is, I would say, on the cutting edge of doing this. We can see it's feasible and learn from their lessons learned to maybe make it easier for places elsewhere to implement similar programming. I don't know much about Florida. I would be curious to know. We have our challenges. Yes, I expect so. States that are a little more politically conservative or mixed. They're slow to implement an innovation like this one, let's say. Part of it is that some people think that if you go to jail, you're not to be corrected, you're to be punished, even though it's usually the Department of Corrections. I come from public health, so it's all about viewing addiction as a, not as a moral failing or entirely as a personal choice, but also determined by people's context and other factors above and beyond their personal selves or decision-making. Punishing people isn't going to solve the problem. In fact, it's likely to just worsen it. It's another stressor in their life that becomes a reason why they continue to use. I was raised during the war on drugs. A criminal justice approach to the drug problem mostly hasn't worked in my mind. I look at all these other psychosocial issues as Mm -hmm. spinoffs of the work that you're doing. You are establishing something that works reasonably well, and it'll get better with more research, more experience, but you have a very good, solid message. How do we take your good message 
and extrapolate, extend, fund, etc. what's necessary to maintain your excellent observations. Right now, we are working on estimating the cost of a program like this one, and there will be then a cost offset analysis. So given how much a program like this costs to implement, and now we have the outcomes in hand and what are the costs associated with those, do the benefits outweigh the costs? In a future session, we could talk about the economic analysis if you're interested in that. Based on prior work in other places, if people engage with treatment and avoid re-arrest and reincarceration, my experience is that it tends to be more of a benefit. Are you going to continue? What do you have in the pipeline, so to speak? I'm leading what's called the Massachusetts Justice Community Opioid Innovation Network, MassJCoin. It's a study funded by the National Institutes of Health, NIH, National Institute of Drug Abuse. We're one of, I think, now 13 clinical research hubs. We're working now with nine jails in Massachusetts to look at the outcomes and implementation and costs of their delivery of an MOUD program to people while they're incarcerated and also to help them re-enter the community as people leave jail. It's a massive study that will answer, I think, some of these questions or provide a response to some of the critiques that you've offered. And I think that data will be so important because when it comes to uh, policy, often it's all about the money. We've been invited to give some early evidence to the Massachusetts legislature, and they're very eagerly awaiting. In Massachusetts in 2018, there was a legislative mandate that jails pilot test these medications. A few jails stepped forward to pilot test, and those are the ones that we're now working with to study what happens as a result of this legislative mandate. The legislature very much wants to know, you did this, now what are the outcomes of it? And how do we use this to inform policymaking as this initial mandate like sunset? Will this become our usual policy down the road? I heard that the average cost of incarceration in Florida jails, I must preface this to say that if my number is off, I apologize for that. But the theme is here, that it was $21,000 a year to keep someone in prison Mm-hmm. In our discussions with that, we said $21,000, that'll buy a lot of psychotherapy. That'll buy a lot of treatment modalities. Wouldn't it be great if we could get that money and focus it over using your data and then putting it into programs? So yeah. the cost analysis, pray tell, will be what we want it to be and very persuasive. I hope so. Yeah. I really hope yeah. so. I feel like this is a teaser. It's like a to be continued episode yes. here. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. <laughs> Elizabeth Evans, thanks so much for sharing this important information. It certainly will be very interesting to observe the impact that your work might have on the opioid in jail arena as we look to the future. Great. Thank you so much. It was great talking to both of you. Thank you as well. Have a good day. Stay warm.